Mr. Valiant. Mr. Valiant. You've got the wrong idea about me, Mr. Valiant. I'm a pawn in this, just like Roger. Can you help me find him? Just name your price, and I'll pay it. Yeah, I bet you would. You've got to have the rabbits to make the scam work. No, no, no. I love my husband. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Weren't you the one I caught playing patty cake with old man Acme? You didn't catch me, Mr. Valiant. You were set up to take those pictures. What are you talking about? Maroon wanted to blackmail Acme. I didn't want to have anything to do with it, but he said if I didn't pose for those patty cake pictures, Roger would never work in this town again. I couldn't let that happen. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. What a wife. I'm desperate, Mr. Valiant. Can't you see how much I need you? <clears throat> Dabbling in watercolors, Eddie? Uh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Goodbye, Eddie. My offer stands firm. Think about it. life had a face I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 292, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Really such a cool, unique movie, probably groundbreaking at the time, but still I would say the effects look pretty cool. It's kind of like watching Jurassic Park today where there's some things that you're like, okay, I do see the CGI here, but it all still works. It's not in a way that's like jarring or takes you out of it yeah it really is a one of one it's one of a kind nothing else like it completely unique for a lot of reasons which we'll get into beyond just the blend of animation and the real world there's a lot of things about this movie that probably will never be replicated but we'll see before we jump into who framed roger rabbit and there will be a lot believe it or not a lot to talk about (laughs) Let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. I don't think we're going to be paying the $8 to get verified, because it seems like a a dork move. 
Oh, yeah, no. Oh, that's a thing. <laughs> Jesus, man. Just so out of it. I don't know. Is this an Elon Musk thing? Yeah. Okay. Twitter is basically on fire. It's yeah. destructing before our very eyes right now because anyone can get verified and it's led to all kinds of problems already, of course. It's $8 a month? Or? Yeah, I think wow. so. Which would be funny for yeah. the podcast, but I really... We would have the least amount of followers for any verified account. No, I don't think so. Not the way this is probably going to go. <laughs> yeah. But we're already paying for a website to host the podcast. We we pay for our own equipment. <laughs> yeah. I'm not paying more money. No. If Twitter really turns into some bizarre world where only verified accounts get seen and get paid attention to or some stupid <laughs> garbage, then we probably just won't do it. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc., and subscribe to the podcast. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a sticker, you can still let us know on Twitter. Find us at Greatest Pod and then slip us a DM or a tweet or something, and we'll get that out to you. We still have some. It's been a little while since anyone's reached out, but that's okay. Yeah, comes in waves. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. Check out what we're watching. If you follow me at Zach1983 and I don't follow you back or something, either comment on one of my reviews and let me know or reach out on Twitter or something. I don't really pay that close attention now to who's following me. and I'm sure that it's possible that people have gone that direction because of this podcast and then they're like well you didn't follow me back or whatever oh yeah so i would like to follow the listeners back so Uh let me know to just to make sure my follower base gets like volatile like the stock market i will just log in and be like oh i lost like 10 followers well a lot of people are trying to farm followers and then if you don't follow them back or what you know i know i know it's a whole game doing the dance who framed roger rabbit 1988 Directed by Robert Zemeckis, screenplay by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman. Don't make fun of his last name, Matt. Please, I won't. Please, I I will withhold. Loosely based on the 1981 novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf. We'll get back to that in a second. First of all, I want to address the elephant in the room. No Hmm. question mark in the title, which I find kind of infuriating. I'm okay with it. Apparently, it's considered bad luck in the industry. I guess it's probably true, but I was tempted to include one in the title for our episode, but I realized that's just not official. So yeah, I didn't not. realize that. I guess it was something that, much like everything else in life, something I never paid attention to. So we'll talk briefly about the book, which neither of us have read, but from what I can gather, the book is considerably different from the film. The thing that made it worth adapting, though, was the idea, and that's where Gary K. Wolf certainly gets credit of regular humans interacting in the real world, but with cartoon characters. In the book, it's actually not television or film cartoon characters, but comic strip characters. And the story is completely different. The characters are basically the same, but the story's different. However, Wolf does get credit for the line, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way, mm. among a few other key lines that made it in, but. As I said, the thing that ends up on the screen is considerably different. The budget of the film is in some sort of question. It seems like it's 50.6 million. Amblin and Touchstone insist this is the number. 
and not the 70 million which has been stated and printed numerous times in tons of the trades. I see. It's kind of a big difference, I guess, because 70 million in 1988 would have made it the most expensive movie mm. ever, I think, at that point, possibly. Certainly the most expensive animated film by far. And so I don't know that they want to carry that around with them, even though it was a massive hit and it led to all kinds of good things for Disney in the long run. But whatever, it doesn't matter. The box office was $351.5 million. It was a massive hit. As we've already said, nothing else like it. Yeah. I was alive when this film came out. I didn't see it in the theater, but I did see it on VHS probably pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have a good enough memory to gauge what it was like when it came out, but I have to I, imagine that people were like blown away. That's what I'm thinking. I'm envisioning people seeing the trailers for this being like, holy shit. It's Disney and Warner Brothers, the two biggest companies, plus some other characters as well from other companies. They're interacting with people in a way that we haven't seen before, in a way that surpasses other films that tried to do this because of the attention to detail, which we'll get into some of that. This episode's going to be long enough already, but we are going to talk about some of the making of because it's so unique and so time-consuming and the level of detail that they thought about to make it look right is crazy Uh because how do you make it look as if the cartoon characters are interacting with the real world? And they came up with all these different ways to do it. It's one of those things where when you have time away from the movie and you go back... You're sort of expecting it th- certain things to look worse, and they mostly don't. Yeah, it still looks pretty good. I was telling you that when I was a kid, this was one of the first movies I watched regularly because I would go over to a neighbor girl's house every day before school, like kindergarten, first grade. It was like an hour before school every day, so would never finish a full movie, but pretty much watch Batman Returns and this alternating so I, I'd seen the two great films, yeah, by the way. But a we- kind of a weird way to, I guess that was just the era, you know, as like a five year old kid. Those are the movies, you know, because there's definitely some weirdness with the Penguin and everything in Batman Returns, and then this, you're being exposed to Jessica Rabbit, and probably setting you up for some unfair expectations from life between Jessica Rabbit and Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. Yeah, a lot going on there. You wonder why. It's all ended in just a massive depression for me. <laughs> but it was, yeah, I was watching this with Lindsay and I was just like, huh, Jessica Rabbit, you think a little unrealistic body image? And she was like, you think? And then she just goes, but the Kardashians, though. <laughs> That's the thing. Generations of women have just been chasing the <laughs> Jessica Rabbit <laughs> yeah. aesthetic. To this day, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is the one and only time that Disney and Warner Brothers characters have appeared in a film together. In 1996, Warner Brothers made Space Jam with the Looney Tunes characters and all of that, and Disney apparently broke a gentleman's agreement to allow them use of a Disney character, which, when you're younger, and this movie came out in the 80s, it just seems like they're different worlds, but in reality, that's only eight years later. Yeah. But as I was explaining to you, Disney in 1988 was in such a different world by the time it was 1996. They were so much more on top of the heap. The 80s was sort of a rough time for Disney, which we'll talk about more as we go. And this movie helped bring them back. Changed the momentum. But yeah, I think Warner Brothers wanted to use one character. I'm not sure which. It didn't specify. Probably Mickey Mouse, but I don't know. 
in Space Jam, and Disney just said no. Wow. And it didn't happen. Brutal. And then Warner Brothers swore that they were never working with them again. Walt Disney Productions purchased the film rights back in 81, shortly after the publication of the novel. Price and Seaman then pen a couple of drafts of the script. Zemeckis throws his hat in the ring to direct, but Disney had no interest in him at that point due to his first two films, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars, both bombing at the box office. Both of them are good films. You should check them out. Definitely. Between 1981 and 1983, test footage was shot with... Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee-wee Herman, as Roger Rabbit, doesn't really go anywhere until the project is revamped in 85 by Michael Eisner, the then-new CEO at Disney. He approaches Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy, to produce alongside Disney. The project finally gets greenlit at $30 million, which made it, at the time, the most expensive animated film put into production. But there was a feeling even then that it could be a big hit and quote-unquote save Disney's animation department. More on this later Mm. as we go. Spielberg's contract included an extensive amount of creative control and a large percentage of the box office profits. Disney kept all merchandising rights. Spielberg then convinced Warner Brothers, Fleischer Studios, Famous Studios, King Feature Syndicate, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner Entertainment, and Universal Pictures slash Walter Lance Productions to lend their characters to appear in the film with, in some cases, stipulations on how those characters were portrayed. For example, Disney's Donald Duck and Warner Brothers' Daffy Duck appear as equally talented dueling pianists and Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny also share a scene and I think equal screen time. Yeah. Apart from this agreement and some of the original Looney Tunes voice artists being hired to reprise their roles, Warner Brothers and the various other companies were not involved in the production of Roger Rabbit. The producers were ultimately unable to acquire the rights to use Popeye, Tom and Jerry, Little Lulu, Casper, or the Terry Tunes characters for appearances from their respective owners. So they went out and they tried to get everyone. And they got a lot of the bigs, fun. but they didn't yeah. get everybody. I definitely like the way they do it in the movie where they weave it in throughout and then there's just sort of a big moment at the end where you get the whole gang. Yeah, I think that there is a certain novelty to it, but you're not you're never overwhelmed by it right. because most of those characters are just cameos, essentially. Yes. The focal points are the new characters, Roger, Jessica, Eddie Valiant, etc. Mm-hmm. Doom, Judge Doom. It's not a lot of focus on these other people yeah (laughs) people these other characters (laughs) terry gilliam was offered the chance to direct but he passed something he later regretted this does seem up his alley and then after romancing the stone and back to the future were massive successes zemeckis was then hired he and spielberg hired richard williams to direct the animation a lot of interesting character what ifs with this, with casting, I ultimately think it's great that we landed on Bob Hoskins, but I'll throw out some of the other stuff just for fun. Harrison Ford was Spielberg's original choice to play Eddie Valiant, but his price was too high. Chevy Chase was the second choice, but he was not interested. Bill Murray was also considered for the role, but due to his idiosyncratic method of receiving offers for roles, he missed out on it completely. He was later upset about this but that's how he mm-hmm. always has done business it's sure. hard to get in in touch with him and all that stuff yeah he doesn't have like normal representation 
Eddie Murphy reportedly turned down the role as he misunderstood the concept of cartoon characters and human beings coexisting. Uh. He also later regretted it. I think he talked about that on Inside the Actor Studio or somewhere like that, where he was like, I didn't get what they were talking about. And yeah, when yeah. I saw it, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, right. Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Sylvester Stallone, Edward James Olmos, Wallace Shawn, Ed Harris, Charles Grodin, and Don Lane were also considered. Wow. That would have been kind of fun to see Jack Nicholson in it, just to kind of add another layer to the whole Chinatown type thing. I don't know that it would have been as good. Probably not. I think, I think Hoskins certain... is dead on. I think that's the, the pick. Yeah, I think a lot of those guys would overwhelm the yeah. part. I can't really imagine Stallone, Nicholson, Robin Williams. Those guys would be too much, I think. Yeah. They have too much cult of Charisma. personality. Yeah. Ultimately, Hoskins was chosen by Spielberg because of his acting skill and because Spielberg believed he had a hopeful demeanor and he looked like he belonged in that era. By the way, if I had known at five years old that by 30 I would look like Bob Hoskins in this movie. <laughs> I think you're giving yourself too much credit. Yeah. I'd say 25, maybe. <laughs> to facilitate Hoskins' performance, Charles Fleischer dressed in a Roger Rabbit costume and stood in behind the camera for most of the scenes, which almost to a maniacal sense from what I understand. People were like, what the fuck is with this oh, dude wow. okay. doing this? Yeah, He always seemed kind of weird, you know, and... Mm-hmm. He later would be an actor, too, in addition to doing voices, and he plays like that really creepy guy yeah. in Zodiac. Kind of an odd-looking dude. <laughs> yeah. Price and Seaman continued toiling away on the script, even after Spielberg and Zemeckis were hired, so they stayed on. Their inspiration was the Walt Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons from the golden age of American animation, especially Tex Avery and Bob Clampett cartoons. The Cloverleaf streetcar subplot was inspired by chinatown price and seaman said that the red car plot suburban expansion urban and political corruption really did happen in los angeles during the 1940s car and tire companies teamed up against the pacific electric railway system and bought them out of business where the freeway runs in los angeles is where the red car used to be that's from price himself one thing i was dialing in on during this viewing was how much regional humor for Los Angeles there is about the transportation situation there in general. Yeah, that's what's cool about this movie is that it seems like a goof, and it is to a uh-huh. certain extent. And yes, they did borrow from an unrealized second Chinatown sequel, although this would have been before even The Two Jakes, I guess. Yeah, but right. nevertheless, that shit is real. Los Angeles yeah. used to have this public transit system, and it basically got bullied out so that they could build all this shit. Right. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is also loosely based on Robert Towns' story for Cloverleaf, the third J.J. Jake Giddies movie that was supposed to follow Chinatown and potentially the two Jakes from 1990, but was never made. Cloverleaf is referenced in this movie as the company used by Judge Doom as a front for his corrupt actions. There are several parallels between Chinatown and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Both films begin with a detective being hired to investigate an infidelity case. Both result in one of the targets of the investigation being killed. In both films, the real guilty party is a public official who hopes to gain control of a public utility, just as Jake is haunted by a tragedy that took place in Chinatown. Eddie lost his brother in Toontown. Yeah, that's one of the other things that makes this movie great, is 
having haunted pasts. Well, having (laughs) the other piece of it be this sort of goofy detective noir world, but everything kind of feels authentic too, like the jazz score and everything. Yeah, there's a commitment to authenticity that I can't really imagine them caring about now. They'd be like, audiences don't care about that. And they'd probably be right. It's not worth the money or the time. But yeah, there's something extra special about the quality of this film, but also the adult-oriented nature. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. Once filming actually started, the budget ballooned, going higher and higher. But Disney pressed onward, enthusiastic to work with Spielberg. That's something else that is going to play into an episode that we're going to be doing for Thanksgiving and just how Spielberg's evolution throughout the 80s changes so much to the point where Disney and Warner Brothers are both so happy to work with Spielberg. His relationship with Warner Brothers sort of plays into the Roger Rabbit thing because A, he gets the characters to be in it, but then B, part of the deal was they couldn't do any Roger Rabbit television stuff because Spielberg already had a deal with Warner Brothers to do Tiny Toons and then eventually Animaniacs as well. So he's just got his fingers in so many different things at once, but everyone's so happy and eager to work with him because it seems like he's got that golden touchback and everything is turning into big money. So let's get into a little bit of how they did this. VistaVision cameras installed with motion control technology were used for the photography of the live action scenes, which would be composited with animation. Rubber mannequins of Roger Rabbit, Baby Herman, and the Toon Patrol portrayed the animated characters during rehearsals to teach the actors where to look when acting with open air and imaginative cartoon characters. Many of the live action props held by cartoon characters were shot on set with the props either held by robotic arms or manipulated with strings similar to a marionette. For example, a test was shot at ILM with an actor playing the detective who would climb down a fire escape and the rabbit is supposed to follow. He knocks down some stacked boxes Naturally, there would not be a rabbit during the test, so the camera would go down the fire escape and the boxes would fall when a wire was pulled. It's sort of hard to imagine what they were doing exactly, but essentially they would come up with all these different ways where once the cartoons were added later, they would interact with all these different things. So they just think about a lot of this stuff ahead of time. It does seem tough. I was thinking they must have had to do like a lot of screen testing for this to make sure that it was going to look the way they wanted it to. Oh, for sure, yeah. But it goes beyond just the obvious. So you have a character hold a gun, and you're like, well, that's plot-driven. We know we got to think about this gun. But it'll get much deeper than that, because they really wanted it to be memorable and special, even for people who might not notice every single detail. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff later. But they really went the extra mile to make it seem like the cartoon characters were in this world, too. Not just their own separate thing and it Uh becomes obvious over time that they're not really there because i think that even at our advanced ages now yeah you can really buy into the magic of the movie definitely it never really seems like roger and eddie are in different movies or in different worlds agreed roger's just there in his office it's fairly seamless (laughs) we believe he's got lust in his eyes for jessica (laughs) we believe it post-production lasted 14 months CGI at the time was not advanced enough by this point, so thank God, by the way. So all the animation was done using cells and optical compositing. First, the animators 
and layout artists were given black and white printouts of the live action scenes known as photostats and they placed their animation paper on top of them the artists then drew the animated characters in relationship to the live action footage due to zemeckis's dynamic camera moves the animators had to confront the challenge of ensuring the characters were not slipping and slipping all over the place to ensure this did not happen and that the characters looked real zemeckis and spielberg met for about an hour and a half and came up with the idea that if the rabbit sits down in an old chair dust comes up She'd always be touching something real. After the rough animation was complete, it was run through the normal process of traditional animation until the cells were shot on the rostrum camera with no background. Williams came up with the idea of making the cartoon characters 2.5-dimensional, and the animated footage was sent to ILM for compositing, where technicians animated three lighting layers, shadows, highlights, and tone mats, separately to give the characters a sense of depth and create the illusion of them being affected by the lighting on set. Wow, this does seem like it would just be so much work. Yeah, and I think part of it was Spielberg, Zemeckis, and company, Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy, everybody, pushing everyone to do not only their best work, but to dream bigger and to yeah. do something that had never been done Push before. Push the envelope. Which is something that has followed Spielberg throughout his career. Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Jurassic Park, etc., just always taking it to the next level, dreaming bigger of something that hasn't quite existed yet, but they believe can. Right. And you have to have this crazy vision. Something that I found kind of funny was that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is set in 1947, and so the filmmakers wanted everything to be time period appropriate, including the designs of the cartoon characters featured in the film. Right. However, Warner Brothers wanted the current character designs and not the time period appropriate ones. They wanted their new artists yeah. drawings to be Which used. is where it lands, right? No. It's not. So Zemeckis makes fake footage with the mm. current designs. <laughs> sends that over to Warner Brothers so to appease them. But in the final film they're using the forties versions of those characters. Oh wow. Well you can tell with Daffy. Daffy yeah pretty but, obvious. But what, when Bugs Bunny shows up? What about him? I don't know. I guess it looks pretty modern to me. Well, he might not have gone through as many Well, that's true. For this movie, animation director Richard Williams set out to break three rules that previously were conventions for combining live action and animation. First, move the camera as much as possible so the tunes don't look pasted on flat backgrounds. Check. Second, use lighting and shadows to an extreme that was never before attempted. Check. Third... Have the tunes interact with real-world objects and people as much as possible? Check again. That's what distinguishes this film from any other attempt to ever try anything like this, I think, is that they just went for it so hard Uh to convince you that they are, in fact, in the same world. Needless to say, the hefty financial investment and the seven or so years of pre-production and production paid off. At the time, Who Framed Roger Rabbit became the 20th highest grossing film of all time. Audiences and critics adored it. It holds a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes still. Wow. Siskel and Ebert both raved. People were blown away by the innovation, but loved the story too. That's right. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was nominated for six Academy Awards, winning three. Best Film Editing for Arthur Schmidt. Best Effects, Sound Effects Editing Charles L. Campbell and Louis L. Edelman. 
and best effects, visual effects, Ken yeah. Ralston, Richard Williams, Ed Jones, and George Gibbs. I was going to say it had to do well in the technical achievement categories. The film also received a special achievement award for animation direction and creation of the cartoon characters for Richard Williams. The legacy is actually immeasurable. Yes, the film created more interest in animation as a whole, sparking a new modern animation scene, but it also led to what is known as the Disney Renaissance, which officially kicked off the next year with The Little Mermaid. So I was trying to explain this to you briefly, but Disney was in a rough place Yeah, starting in the early 70s, but it really started to take hold in the early 80s when Don Bluth left and took a bunch of Disney's animators in the middle of making Fox and the Hound and created Don Bluth Studios, which basically kicked Disney's ass in animation throughout most of the 80s. They made The Secret of Nymph. Land Before Time? Land Before Time. An American Tale, revival stuff. Eventually, all dogs go to heaven, but that was where it sort of broke back to Disney because Little Mermaid kicked that movie's ass. So, love all dogs go to heaven. They were in a completely different spot than they are now because now everybody associates Disney with all of the different shit they own and and have owned for the last 10, 15, 20 years and have really built up. And they're now the biggest company basically out there. But at the time, they really weren't. Mm-hmm. Their live action stuff usually wasn't that great. They would have hits. Yeah, they yeah. were a studio, obviously, that had existed for a long time, but their bread and butter was the classic animations, the Snow White, the Cinderella, Peter Pan, the stuff from the 40s, 50s. I think right. Snow White was even the yeah. 30s. The classic stuff. But there had been a big gap. There wasn't anything like that. Yeah, and it's hard to remember because then once they hit this period of just hit after hit, that's all you really recall. Yeah, so... Who Framed Roger Rabbit is such a huge success that it pushes them over the edge to finalize The Little Mermaid, which is something that, honestly, they had been kicking around for like 60 years and just had never made. It just hadn't happened. It was something that they had always planned on doing, whatever. The Little Mermaid comes out, is a massive hit. It basically wins everything back for Mm -hmm. them in terms of goodwill with, with the audiences and animation. It looks great. The songs are great. People still watch it today. They're about to do a live-action remake, et cetera, et cetera. Uh And then that leads to almost every year, not necessarily quite every year, but a run then, which includes Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. Lion King just being massive. And then this is what brings them all of the success that would lead to expanding the studio eventually and get to where we are now, for better or for worse. But I think that... The Disney animation renaissance is sort of indirectly responsible for them being in a position to own Marvel and Fox and all this shit. Star Wars. Star Wars, everything. Because it just builds them back up. Uh Because they were pretty low at the time. There were three theatrical animated shorts of Roger Rabbit produced. Oddly enough, I saw two of these in the theater, even though I did not see... Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the theater? Probably because it just was a year too early, I would imagine. Tummy Trouble, which was shown before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which we talked about when we did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids on the podcast, because some people attributed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids' unexpectedly huge box office to the promise of seeing more Roger Rabbit, which I do think it was a factor because Roger Rabbit was such a popular character, and you're talking about a year later. Yeah. 
So you get to watch a short before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. The second one, I had no idea that this existed and it completely blew me away because it just doesn't seem like that type of movie. Roller Coaster Rabbit shown before Dick Tracy mm. in 1990, the next year after that. I know Dick Tracy's sort of a goofy movie, and, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> but it's a little more adult. It's definitely a touchstone right. release, which Roger Rabbit was as well. I don't know. It just seems like an odd pairing to me. Obviously, they've got the whole detective noir crossover thing. Yeah, but I don't think Roller Coaster Rabbit had anything to do with that. I know, but I think that's what people associate Roger Rabbit with feeling like. And then Trail Mix-Up was shown before a movie called A Far-Off Place, which I also saw in the theater in 1993, which is funny because that's a Disney live-action movie that did not make any money. I know, you were talking to me about it, and I was like, I feel like I've seen it, but then when you started explaining what it was and who was in it, I was like, no, I definitely have not seen that. Baby Reese Witherspoon is in it. Their parents get brutally murdered, which is insane. And then the two kids have to cross a desert, I guess, to get to safety or something. It's sort of hard to remember now, but it was a strange movie. It wasn't a big movie. I actually saw it at a birthday party, I think. It must have just been the only kids movie that was out at the time or something. But I distinctly remember seeing the Roger Rabbit cartoon before. And I think they still do that now. Do they still do animated shorts before kids movies sometimes i think occasionally yeah like pixar and stuff probably that's probably right however we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh oh boy who framed roger rabbit was not without its controversies eisner the ceo and roy e disney the vice chairman found the film to be a little too risque and adult oriented which it is causing Eisner and Zemeckis to butt heads a little bit. However, for whatever reason, Zemeckis had been given final cut privilege and refused to make any changes. I think that was probably because of Spielberg he got that. Ultimately, the film was released under Disney's more adult-oriented Touchstone Pictures banner instead of the flagship Walt Disney Pictures banner. It's the only one besides... A Nightmare Before Christmas, who was released as a touchstone that got put into the official Walt Disney canon after the fact. I see. Because Touchstone, for the most part, was adult movies. They released R-rated movies. It was whatever. It was normal movies. I think that those were the two that sort of skirted the line in between and then kind of got added afterwards. But it doesn't end there, folks. I think that a lot of people know about this stuff. It's that weird mix of is this urban legend is this true oh yeah what's the story because it didn't stop with roger rabbit no no well all of the disney animated films have these little things that are supposedly in there that you mostly miss unless you go frame by frame i feel like it's part of everyone's journey that at some point somebody reveals this to you and then you go and watch all of these frame by frame moments in the disney animated movies it just happens in everyone's lives With the film's Laserdisc release, Variety first reported in March 1994 that observers uncovered several scenes of antics from the animators that supposedly featured brief nudity of Jessica Rabbit, while undetectable when played at the usual rate of 24 film frames per second, the Laserdisc player allowed the viewer to advance frame by frame to uncover these visuals. Whether or not they were actually intended to to depict the nudity of the character remains unknown. 
Many retailers said that within minutes of the Laserdisc debut, their entire inventory was sold out. <laughs> Yikes. The run was fueled by media reports about the controversy, including stories on CNN and various newspapers. So there's a scene in the film mm-hmm. when I believe both Eddie and Jessica are thrown out of the taxi cab when the taxi hits the dip. Okay. And they go flying yes. out. There's a moment where apparently in this uncut version for a brief second she spreads her legs and she's not wearing underwear Hmm. now i want to be clear what you're looking at in this frame evidently because it's hard to really know for sure because i don't know that people could really convert laser discs to get them online so it's not even something you really find online or anything It, it really exists in that urban legend world because it was then taken out and re oh wow yeah, okay. reissued without yeah. this. So what you're talking about is the absence of underwear. That's what you're talking about. They just didn't paint underwear. You're not talking about a detailed drawing of a vagina or anything like that. But basically, that would be there's a spot between her legs that's the same flesh color as her yeah. legs. That's what we're talking about. It's very basic instinct. And people were so starving i guess that they had to run out and buy this laser disc i know it is crazy <laughs> i just wanted to be clear it's it's later in the film there's parts where she's hanging with roger on that hook at the end where it's also you feel like you're getting a show almost <laughs> they definitely <laughs> really gave her a lot of leg for sure visible yes so yeah that's what we're talking about there's like one quick frame then they re-released it without it it was cut another frequently debated scene includes one in which baby herman extends his middle finger as he passes under a woman's dress and reemerges with drool on his lip, which I don't know about the extending of the middle finger, but he definitely still goes under her dress. That's like pretty much right at the beginning of the movie. Right. I don't know about the drool on his lip either. I didn't really notice anything. Same but here. That's still there. Also, controversy exists over the scene where Daffy Duck and Donald Duck are playing a piano duel and during... His trademark ranting gibberish. It is claimed that Donald calls Daffy a goddamn stupid N-word. Wow. However, this is a misinterpretation with the line from the script actually being doggone stubborn little. Huh. It's an interesting insult. Once you put those words into your head and then you watch that scene, it does kind of sound like he's saying that. Okay. But I wouldn't have thought that until I had read that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I think that if Who Framed Roger Rabbit would have came out at a time when the internet was up and running, I think there would have been all kinds of Rule 34 Jessica porn, which I'm sure that there is already. I was going to say, I, yeah, I'm, that has to be out there. But I think that would have led to that same sort of fetish thing that like maybe Space Jam contributed to with furries or, or different things like that, where they draw sort of like hot, yeah. feminized cartoon characters which led to like furries but i'm telling you these are the same people that are paying eight dollars to be verified on twitter right now (laughs) (laughs) so without further ado let's talk who framed roger rabbit the year is 1947 the jazzy noir music gives way to a traditionally zany cartoon intro it is cool how this starts off that way rk maroon presents a maroon cartoon baby herman and roger rabbit in something's cooking and it begins as a standard cartoon. Roger babysits this baby. and I love the credit sequence for it, too, like a still frame animation. Yeah, it, it starts as if it's a cartoon movie. The first yeah. five minutes or so, 
is a regular looking cartoon. You have a baby who wants cookies, havoc ensues, trying to get the cookies from the top of the refrigerator. And then as it ends, because the director calls cut when Roger is unable to produce stars going around his head when he gets hit on the head with the refrigerator, that reveal that the cartoons are actors performing a piece and their own stunts, Uh as if everything you've ever seen in a cartoon is real, (laughs) is funny. I know. It's a funny concept right off the bat. You see different things drop on different characters' heads in cartoons all the time, but the idea that they're actual actors and that that's a stunt is very funny. And that's something you do is create different things that circle around your head to indicate that you've been injured and Roger is struggling to produce what he's supposed to. It's birds instead of stars. Joel Silver's cameo as the director of the Baby Herman cartoon was a prank on Disney chief Michael Eisner by Zemeckis and Spielberg. Eisner and Silver hated each other from their days at Paramount Pictures in the early 1980s, particularly after the difficulties involved in making 48 Hours. Silver shaved off his beard, paid his own expenses, and kept his name out of all initial cast sheets. When Eisner was told after the movie was complete who was playing the director, because Silver was nearly unrecognizable, he reportedly shrugged and said he was pretty good. (laughs) So it was a prank that didn't really have a big payoff, I guess. He was kind of like, okay. Yeah. I would thought it was kind of cool and progressive that Baby Herman essentially seems like he's gender bending and playing a woman, or a woman, a girl. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't put that together. I assume the baby in the cartoon is supposed to be a girl. She's got a pink bow. That's true, and yeah. Sounding kind of a little more feminine, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And then the reveal that Baby Herman is like an adult man in a baby body <laughs> is very funny. Yeah. This is our first look at Roger. Roger Rabbit is described as having a Warner's face, a Disney body, and a Tex Avery attitude. Goofy's overalls, Mickey Mouse's gloves, and Porky Pig's bow tie. Hmm. Richard Williams says he based his Roger color model on the American flag, red overalls, white body, blue tie, so that everyone would subliminally like it. (laughs) Okay, wow. We then transition seamlessly into the real world, but that it's not exactly the real world as we know it. It's a real world co-populated by both humans and cartoon characters known as Toons. Toons regularly interact with real people, act in animated shorts and films, and reside in an area of Los Angeles known as Toontown. Yeah, a lot of local entertainment, too. Like It's not that they're just doing movies. There's ongoing stage shows. That people are purchasing tickets to. Our story will revolve around private detective Eddie Valiant, played by Bob Hoskins, who once upon a time worked closely with Toons alongside his brother Teddy, but sank into depression and alcoholism after Teddy was murdered by a Toon during a case. The Toon evidently dropped a piano on Teddy's head. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of said as a joke, but it's kind of dark too. Yeah, there's definitely an undercurrent of darkness throughout the film, even having your main human character be an alcoholic, be a loser, is sort of different from what we would come to expect from Disney over the next 20 years after this film. I would agree. Although that was the everyman of the 80s, alcoholic loser. (laughs) My kind of hero. Mr. Maroon, Mr. Valiant's here too. He'll be right with me. No, no, no! Wait until he 
gets to his feet, then hit him with a boulder. Right on, Kenny. How much do you know about show business, Mr. Valiant? Only there's no business like it. No business I know. Yeah, and there's no business more expensive. I'm 25 grand over budget on the latest Baby Herman cartoon. You saw the rabbit blowing his lines. He can't keep his mind in his work. You know why? One too many refrigerators dropped on his head. Ah, he's a toon. You can drop anything you want on his head. He'll shake it off. He'll break his heart. Goes to pieces just like you or me. Read that. Seen cooing over calamari with not-so-new sugar daddy was Jessica Rabbit, wife of Maroon cartoon star Roger. What's this got to do with me? You're the private detective. You figure it out. Look, I don't have time for this. Look, Valiant, his wife's poisoned, but he thinks she's Betty Crocker. I want you to follow her. Get me a couple of nice, juicy pictures I can wise the rabbit up with. Forget it. I don't work too time. What's wrong with Toontown? Every Joe loves Toontown. You get Joe to do the job, because I ain't going. Whoa, fella. You don't want to go to Toontown, you don't have to go to Toontown. Nobody said you had to go to Toontown anyway. Have a seat, Valiant. The Rabbit's Wife sings at a joint called the Ingham Paint Club. Toon Review. Strictly humans only, okay? So what do you think, Valiant? Well? The job's gonna cost you a hundred bucks, plus expenses. A hundred bucks? That's ridiculous. So's the job. All right, all right, you got your hundred bucks. Have a drink, Eddie. I don't mind if I do. R.K. Maroon, head of Maroon Cartoon Studios, is concerned about the recent poor performances of his star, Roger Rabbit, so Maroon hires Eddie to investigate rumors about Roger's voluptuous toon wife, Jessica, being romantically involved with Marvin Acme. By the way, the motive here is so that they can expose it. Owner of both the Acme Corporation and Toontown. You mean, what is the pretend motivation? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of unclear. I guess it's just to get to the bottom of what's going on. Okay. Maybe snap Roger out of it, get him away from Jessica, is under the guise of, like, this woman's bad news. Right. You gotta get rid of her. We get an early Dumbo cameo here. I guess evidently Bob Hoskins's young son stayed mad at him because he was upset that his dad didn't introduce him to Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse. Oh, wow. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> yeah, I think this beginning part is fun where you're starting to see like the recognizable characters. And that, I just like that it's more random ones with Dumbo and then it's like the brooms from Fantasia. Yeah. And I like that there's sort of a cynical attitude of like, oh, these fucking tunes, we got to get them to work. And yeah. It's hard to, but I'm <laughs> paying ma- Dumbo and Peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> there's like a harsh reality of showbiz vibe to this, which uh-huh. you would get in movies with real people all the time. But having it be about tunes is funny, as right. if the tunes are also a part of the world. And there's a lot of various cartoon gags mixed with the real world throughout the film. I don't know that we're going to necessarily call them all out. It gets a little tiring. I'd say <laughs> It'd so. It'd be like if we were doing an episode of Looney Tunes and sure, we were sure. like trying to explain every gag in it. <laughs> it's kind of annoying. But Eddie is mostly down on his luck. He's bumming cigarettes off of kids, which is another thing that just when- jumps right out. You're like, holy shit, this is Disney. Yeah, yeah. And when he gets back to his office, you can see that his business is still called Valiant and Valiant and 
the ghost of his deceased brother definitely hangs over Eddie and hangs over the story of the film. He goes across the street to the terminal station bar. My kind of joint. To see his on-again, off-again, whatever gal pal Dolores, played by Joanna Cassidy. Who would seemingly have no shortage of suitors in this type of place. Yeah, a lot of bums hanging out at this bar. I would say exclusively dudes. Yeah, real (laughs) sausage fest over at the terminal station bar. Cassidy, a natural redhead, she dyed her hair for the movie as to not compete with Jessica Rabbit. Well, that's a tough competition. Well, I'm sure they were like, well, we're making this cartoon girl redhead, so you gotta be brunette, please. (laughs) We find out that a company called Cloverleaf has bought out the red car, which is the main public transportation in the area, so they're expecting these layoffs, a lot of people drinking their troubles away. I would describe Eddie and... Dolores's relationship as that of one out of a song by the Pogues. <laughs> a real loser mentality going on here. Yeah. I'm here for it, though. <laughs> Hating is... each other, yeah. but also loving each other. Right. Haunted S- past. <laughs> stuck with each other. There's a weird haunted past going on that is sometimes alluded to where I'm like, well, did both Eddie and Teddy take turns with Dolores or what is going on? I know. There's so, like vacationing as yeah. a trio. <laughs> going to Catalina. It was a wild scene for the 40s, I guess. Yeah. Eddie tracks Jessica to her place of employment, the Ink and Paint Club. The password at the door is Walt sent me. Nice little reference to Walt Disney. The Ink and Paint Club's policy of only letting tunes under the premises as entertainers and employees, not as customers, is a reference to numerous segregated venues during the mid-20th century, such as Harlem's Cotton Club, The venue was located in an African-American neighborhood. The performers and staff were African-American, and the shows often had pandering jungle themes, but only white people were allowed in as customers. So this is sort of a a heavy thing to be satirizing in the film, but first of all, I think that there was really just a no-holds-barred policy back then that now they would probably not even want to go into that. Oh, I'd say so. As, a, as something to replicate in a movie. But as we'll get into more with the unmade Roger Rabbit sequels, it definitely seemed like they were willing to go to wild places with this, as there's well, a whole Nazi subplot to the unmade prequel or something. It speaks to the layers and the depth of the world that they're creating here, though, because this has a gimmick. The gimmick would be enough to put butts in seats. You know what I mean? Yeah, But what makes this movie great and next level is how much detail, how much layering is going on for the entire feature. Well, there is always an undercurrent and a hint at a class disparity. For sure. Toons are considered entertainers almost exclusively. And there is a general mistrust or disregard. The mistrust comes in from Eddie, who is now unabashedly anti-tune because of what happened to his brother, but the disregard seems to be from pretty much everyone else, which is just thinking like these are yeah less than in some way. And the way the movie ends, it almost feels like this declaration of freedom for them too. There's not really a sense of imprisonment to where they live in Toonland or whatever, but they are repressed. It is strange that Marvin Acme owns Toontown and... 
I don't know what that means exactly. I know. Because it seems like a place that is more than just a building or something. It's like a yeah. world. What do you think those real estate costs are? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Inside the Ink and Paint Club, there are the dueling ducks on the pianos. We have penguin waiters who are animated, an octopus bartender who is animated. We meet Betty Boop making an appearance Fun. with the original voice and everything. Yeah. I think it's also important to point out here, there is a disappearing ink bit with Marvin Acme, who is there to see Jessica. Which factors into the end. So at least right away, you think that where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. We're hearing these rumors about Jessica and Marvin Acme, and here he is with his full boner on display, (laughs) stage side. Yeah, not really withholding. No. Several voice actors make cameos as the voice of the characters they have played before. These are Tony and Selmo as Donald Duck, Wayne Alwine, Mickey Mouse, and Mel Blanc as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Sylvester, and Tweety Bird. But most noticeable is May Questel as Betty Boop. May did Betty's voice from 1930 until the character was retired in 1939. May Questel then became Popeye the Sailor's girlfriend, Olive Oil. Mm. So this was a time where a lot of these people were still alive. I think a lot of the names I just read off are no longer with us, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 1988, almost 40 years ago at this point, it's like 30 whatever years ago a lot of those people were still hanging on and so they got to be the voices of those characters in this movie which is also pretty cool definitely and then eventually finally after all of this (laughs) build we get a look at jessica rabbit good lord a lot of tension in the crowd a lot of tension in this room right now just thinking about it it's funny too because they always work in these ways to incorporate jokes and i like the idea that eddie is expecting an actual rabbit like roger and he cannot believe what he's seeing right it is so not what he's expecting <laughs> that he just cannot wrap his mind around it cigars cigarettes eddie valiant Betty? long time no see what are you doing here Work's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color. But I still got it, Eddie. Boop, boop, be doo Yeah, you still got it. What's with him? Mr. Acme never misses a night when Jessica performs. Got a thing for rabbits, huh? You had plenty money, 1922. You let all the women make a fool of you. Why don't you do right? Like some other You wouldn't be a wandering now from door 
introduced to Jessica she's singing why don't you do right on stage she's tall she is a human cartoon she's a cartoon but she is human not a rabbit almost has the seductive singing voice her singing voice is Amy Irving the one-time wife of Steven Spielberg oh, yeah her speaking voice is Kathleen Turner who for whatever reason is uncredited in the film <laughs> okay she was nine months pregnant while recording the voice as well wow Jessica Rabbit was based exactly on four movie femme fatales. Writer Gary K. Wolf had based Jessica primarily on the cartoon character Red, Tex Avery's vixen from Red Hot Riding Hood, who performs a musical number in Red Hot Riding Hood as Jessica would do it in this film at the Ink and Paint Club. In addition, animation director Richard Williams said he based Jessica mostly on Rita Hayworth and Gilda, a movie that comes up all the time really yeah people love that rita hayworth veronica lake for the peekaboo hair which was her trademark and at the suggestion of robert zemeckis the look quote-unquote trademark of lauren bacall vicky dugan has also been named as an inspiration for her look i can't say that i'm familiar with vicky dugan although it sounds familiar so i may have seen something i don't know yeah i don't know her To give Jessica's ample bosom an unusual bounce, her supervising animator, Russell Hall, reversed the natural up-down movements of her breasts as she walked. They bounce up when a real woman's breasts bounce down and vice versa. I see, yes. The whole thing is very hypnotic. (laughs) Definitely catches your eye. Eddie coming in his pants when she sits on his lap. (laughs) I would say the entire audience is. Oh, no! (laughs) Oh, boy. It's a lot to take for kids, and it's definitely some kind of a yeah an awakening of seeing this. <laughs> I know, and it is weird to think back me watching this movie in like kindergarten, which I mean, but it's that's the thing. I mean, it was a PG movie. Yeah, different time, I guess. I just cannot imagine this being a PG movie right now. No, I think that for a variety of reasons, it would be PG thirteen, and it's just sexually suggestive. Okay. I think that if they ever do a Roger Rabbit sequel, Jessica would be wearing a lot more clothes and would be completely toned down. Maybe less bounce. Yeah, and that's what I meant by toned down. Considerably less bounce. (laughs) She would still be smoking hot, I imagine. (laughs) Most of their female characters are in Disney. (laughs) Oh, God. 
But you know what I mean. Beautiful. Sure. I'm being a pig about yes. it. But you know what I'm saying. Right. She would still be beautiful, but I think she would be wearing a lot more clothes and be a little bit more realistic in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. I just can't really imagine that they would do a Roger Rabbit sequel now unless it was just robbed of anything that made it interesting in the first place. Well, when you look through the history, it seems like it's been floated several times, but I don't know. It just seems like this is something that cannot really be recaptured. After Jessica's performance, Eddie creeps her dressing room and secretly photographs her and Marvin Acme playing patty cake. Which he then shows to Roger. Well, by the way, from the audience perspective, it does seem like sex. (laughs) As per the assignment from Maroon, Roger becomes distraught about his wife cheating on him. So yeah, they really dance around the whole thing. I think for the adults watching the film, they're supposed to get it. That it's not really patty cake, even though we see the pictures of them literally playing patty cake. But it works as almost a double-edged thing where you have... The joke of it actually being patty cake, right. which is funny in this mixed up, crazy, zany world they uh-huh. live in. But then it also works because the older portion of the audience gets the noir plot. Right, right. You have your femme fatale here, Jessica. She seems like she's going to be the traditional bad girl. So yeah. she's cheating on her husband. We don't really know the full story yet. So we can substitute patty cake for sex. I guess. (laughs) You hit on it. Some of the things that come up are stupid, but still funny. Come on, Raj. Maybe it's time to be a little realistic here. (laughs) Did you really think? (laughs) Come on. That's basically Maroon and Eddie in the office. Come on, Raj. Yeah. Dude, what did you think was going to happen? Get with the program. Comfort, son. You're not the first man whose wife played patty cake on him. I just don't believe it. I won't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Believe it, kid. I took the pictures myself. She played patty cake. No, not my Jessica. Not patty cake. This is impossible. I don't believe it. It can't be. It just can't be. Jessica's my wife. It's absolutely impossible. Jessica's the light of my life. The apple of my eye. The green of my coffee. You better start drinking it black, because Acme's taking the cream now. Hard to believe. Marvin Acme's been my friend and neighbor for 30 years. Who would have thought he was a sugar daddy? Somebody must have made it do it. Now, drink this, son. It'll make you feel better. finished. How about that carrot you owe me, huh? A deal's a deal. Great. 
Roger, I know all this seems pretty painful now, but you'll find someone new. Won't he, Mr. Valiant? Yeah, sure. Good-looking guy like that. <laughs> the Danes will be breaking his door down. Danes? <laughs> what Danes? Don't think you're the only ones for me. You'll see. We'll ride them up this piddling piccadillo. We're gonna be happy again. Got that happy Triple H P.P.I. Well, at least you took it well. Imagine the dark, gritty, R-rated version of this movie. You have the cartoon porn. You have half-human, half-cartoon abominations from pregnancies. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was thinking, Brutal. could a human get a cartoon pregnant in this world? It's like a Blade Runner situation. <laughs> Blade Runner 2049. Well, they both have Joanna Cassidy. Yeah. Junkie cartoons. Of course, if you're in a world with the internet, you have like only tunes instead of only fans. <laughs> Roger's reaction is important because we see his insane reaction to alcohol when he takes a shot here, Yeah, which plants a seed for later. In Eddie's office, there's a little nod to the Maltese Falcon where he hangs his hat, I think. Or okay. There's that big bird yeah, statue. Yeah. There's a little montage here. Eddie's feeling a bit maudlin, drinking. Brighter days gone by. Yeah, I do love the move where you just carry a bottle of whiskey around. Well, not a flask. Straight up bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie and the late Teddy seem to cater specifically to tunes. We find out through photographs that Eddie is looking at. I love their little photo montage when they show Eddie, Teddy, and Dolores opening the business. And it says, two flatfoots and a floozy go into business, 1938. I love a good floozy. Definitely. A good-hearted floozy. Just the use of the word floozy. Yeah, b- pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> the next morning brings with it news that Marvin Acme has bit the dust. Discovered dead in his factory, and evidence points to Roger being responsible, feeling at least invested, if not actually somehow to blame. Eddie arrives on the scene to investigate further. So yeah, we should point out that when Roger takes that shot and then smashes his way out of Maroon's office, he does seem like he is about to go into revenge mode. And they even show him in the film outside of Acme's factory. So there is a little bit of a seed, I guess, to the audience. Like, hey, maybe he did do this. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we know that that's not how it's going to play out. But they do go to that step, at least. This is our first little glimpse of Toontown over that wall, and then Yosemite Sam comes flying over, yelling, my biscuits are burning. Let me tell you what. This popped <laughs> a young Zach I'm to sure. no level. I could not believe the humor of my biscuits are burning. <laughs> I just remember that when we were kids, like me, my sisters, my cousins, whoever. That was a big moment big line in the movie. Reused. I actually don't have weird childhood sexual memories about jessica rabbit at all okay i'm sure i was just annoyed i'm like oh girls <laughs> whatever you know i don't know i was probably younger than what you're describing though because you're yeah. talking about to the point of going to school i'm i'm sure. thinking this is like four years old yeah, five yeah years. Right. no i guess i would have been probably about five something like that five or six mm-hmm. like right about to be into like kindergarten and yeah. all that stuff but yeah i don't know I had just never seen anything like Jessica Rabbit, and I think it was just a life-changing experience. I don't think anybody had, to be honest. 
the way that Marvin Acme was killed is reminiscent of Teddy's cause of death, which no one really seems to point out, I guess, but I think it's noteworthy. Mm-hmm. There's a giant safe or something on him, right? Something has fallen on him. Yeah. I was thinking piano, but that's not it. I think it is a safe. Jessica's there. She slaps Eddie, blaming him for the pictures and everything. It's reminiscent of Mrs. Kittner and Jaws. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I heard there were some photographs <laughs> shown. She's a lot more indignant than that. Yeah. How dare you? Right. Is this man removing evidence from the scene of a crime? Ah, uh, no, Judge Doom. Uh, Valiant here was just picking it up for you. Weren't you, Eddie? Hand it over. Sure. He's number one seller. I see working for a tune has rubbed off on you. I wasn't working for a tune. I was working for Ake Maroon. Yes, we talked to Mr. Maroon. He told us the rabbit became quite agitated when you showed him the pictures. The rabbit said one way or another, he and his wife are going to be happy. Is that true? Pal, do I look like a stenographer? Shut your yap, Eddie. The man's in charge. That's all right, Lieutenant. From the smell of him, I'd say it was the booze talking. No matter, the rabbit won't get far. My men will find him. Weasels? Yes, I find they have a special gift for the work. All right, you mugs, fall out. Did you find the rabbit? Don't worry, Judge. We got the foremans all over the city. We'll find them. You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be, Mr. Valiant? Have you tried Walla Walla? Cucamonga? I hear Kokomo's very nice this time of the year. I'm surprised you're not more cooperative, Mr. Valiant. A human has been murdered by a tune. Don't you appreciate the magnitude of that? Arriving on the scene is Judge Doom, played by Christopher Lloyd, Toontown's sinister Superior Court judge. Very involved in street work for a judge. Yeah, he's full on investigator yeah. he is the judge jury execution That's policeman right. yeah etc all in one many hats he's already convinced of roger's guilt it doesn't seem as if there's the same presumption of innocence afforded to tunes i would agree especially this poor little shoe i know this, that part's actually kind of hard to watch but roger is missing at the moment judge doom shows eddie he means business by demonstrating the power of the dip on that aforementioned shoe. I know, it's sad. It's like seeing like a puppy just get killed. The dip is a chemical substance he employs that is capable of destroying otherwise invulnerable tunes. I might be wrong about this, but I think that little squeaking voice of that shoe was done by the woman that is the voice of Bart Simpson, but I'm, I'm not 100% hmm. sure on that. Tim Curry auditioned for the role of Judge Doom. But he was actually rejected because the producers found him to be too terrifying. <laughs> Christopher Lee was also considered for the role, but turned it down. John Cleese also expressed interest for the role, but was deemed not scary enough. Yeah, I can see that. Peter O'Toole, F. Murray Abraham, Roddy McDowell, Eddie Deason, and Sting mm. were also considered for the role. Sting is scary enough, I'd say. 
Christopher Lloyd was cast because he previously worked with Zemeckis and Spielberg on Back to the Future, which I guess makes sense. I think he's fine. There's really nothing yeah. wrong with him. I don't really know that it would have made too much of a difference in any number of those people. It's really this character has a distinct look that probably supersedes the person playing him. Yeah. Supposedly, the dip is made from turpentine, acetone, and benzene paint thinners used to remove images from cells, which is why they would affect Mm. the tunes and not humans, necessarily. We are introduced to Judge Doom's weasel henchmen. Yes. Who I believe... Notably tunes. ...are officially named, but never mentioned by name in the film themselves. We'll get more into that later, some of the unused ideas for the film when we get to the end. When Eddie returns to his office, Roger's toon co-star, Baby Herman, is waiting for him. Baby Herman is an interesting character. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about things that don't seem like they're in a PG-rated movie at all. This scene upcoming. Baby Herman smoking cigars, smacking women's asses. (laughs) Saying, hey, Toots, why don't you go get me a racing form? (laughs) It is nuts. My problem is I got a 50-year-old lust and a three-year-old dinky. (laughs) You're like, okay, yeah, this is a Disney movie, huh? Yeah, that was a line I think that also came from the book as well. So the two two of the most famous lines for me. I don't know if people really hang on to the dinky line as much as Jessica's line, but (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Baby Herman tells Eddie that Roger is innocent and that Acme's missing will, the one which will give Toontown's ownership to the tunes, may be the key to his murder. Something's not quite adding up. As BH puts it, it stinks like yesterday's diapers. Which is actually a pretty funny line. And also disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of strange to think about cartoons shedding and stuff. I agree. It's something I don't really want to think about. Do you think humans can smell it? Do you think you can smell a cartoon? Uh, well, I guess if the dip can destroy them, wouldn't they have like a paint smell to them? I don't know, but does that smell like shit, though? Uh, <laughs> Do you think anyone's thought about this as much as I am right now? It could. Hey, 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 wait a minute, hey, hey! I've been trying to make him quit, but he just won't listen to me. What do you know, you dumb broad? You got the IQ of a rattle. You valiant? Yeah. I want to talk to you about the acne murder. Hey, stop. Why don't you run downstairs and get me a racing form? Oh! Okay, okay, I'm going. The ladies' man, huh? My problem is I got a 50-year-old lust and a 3-year-old dinky. Yeah, must be tough. Look, valiant, the rabbit didn't kill acne. He's not a murderer. I should know. He's a dear friend of mine. I tell you, Valiant, the whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. Look at this. The paper said Acme left no will. That's a load of sucker dash. Every toon knows Acme had a will. He promised to leave Toontown to us toons. That will is the reason he got bumped off. Has anybody ever seen this will? I know, but he gave us his solemn oath. If you believe that that joker could do anything solid, the gag's on you, pal. I just figured since you were the one who got my pal in trouble, you might want to help get him out. I can pay you. Save your money for a pair of elevator shoes. I know about your dog. Oh, my doggie! Wah! Wah! 
yourself in trouble. They must take a couple of lousy pictures. So after the baby leaves, it plants the seed in Eddie's mind and he does a little bit of research of his own and he starts looking at the newspaper and all this different shit. If you notice, if you pay attention, in the newspaper, there's a different version of Jessica. It's not how Jessica mm. looks in the movie. Yeah. That was a, an earlier version and they changed what she looked like, but they for some reason it's still in that picture in the paper. Oh, I just wanted to use it, I guess. I think I noticed that even as a kid and I always thought it was strange. Mm. Yeah. Eventually, Eddie spots the will when he takes a magnifying glass and he looks at the picture of Marvin Acme playing patty cake, and there's a will. It just says, right. final will and testament or whatever it says. It's sticking out of his jacket pocket, and it's very Back to the Future Part Two esque yeah. which is funny because in your mind, you're thinking, well, Back to the Future came before this, but Back to the Future Part Two did not come out until after Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mm. So you could say that Zemeckis stole from himself to put into Back to the Future Part 2. Yeah. That's so Back to the Future Part 2 is a little Who Framed Roger Rabbit-ish. <laughs> that's true, yeah. <laughs> About spotting something in the newspaper sticking out of a pocket. Well, there's a similar thing with, is it I Want to Hold Your Hand? That's the name of the Beatles movie he did, right? Yeah. That and the original Back to the Future where there's this whole thing with a tower and lightning striking <laughs> as like a big part of the action climax of the movie that's in both of those i don't remember that from i want to hold your hand but i believe you i just yeah. i don't remember it well he liked certain things yeah, and yeah. Used them. eddie discovers the wanted roger in his office hiding in eddie's sad murphy bed now before we get into this eddie's life feels more and more like my life as it's going on throughout the movie when he pulls those filing cabinets down and you realize that's a bed i was like and he's basically just living in this office i know well that part's you but then like the scenes at the bar are me (laughs) roger begs eddie to help exonerate him you get in here through the mail slot i thought it would be best if i waited inside see if i'm wanted for murder no kidding just talking to you could get me a rap rating and a betting wait a minute anybody know you're here nobody not a soul except uh who well you see i didn't know where your office was so i asked the newsboy he didn't know so i asked the fireman the greengrocer the butcher the baker they didn't know but the liquor store guy he knew Jessica. So I rushed over to the again. 
paint club, but she wasn't in her dressing room, so I wrote her a love letter. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me in a fit of jealousy, you wrote your wife a love letter? That's right. I know that she was just an innocent victim of circumstance. I suppose you use the old lipstick on the mirror routine, eh? Lipstick, yes. Mirror, no. I found a nice, clean piece of paper. Dear Jessica, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, four Why don't you just leave the letter there? Obviously, a poem of this power and sensitivity must be read in person, so I went home to wait for her. But the weasels were there waiting for me, so, so I ran. So why come to me? I'm the guy that took the pictures of your wife. Yeah, and you're also the guy that helped all these tunes. Everybody knows when a tune's in trouble, there's only one place to go. Valiant and Valiant. Not anymore. Get out of that chair! That's my brother's chair. Yeah, where is your brother anyway? He looks like a sensitive and sober fellow. In his desperation, Roger handcuffs himself to Eddie just as the weasels arrive, the Toon Patrol. They actually shoot their way in to Eddie's office, and I love that these Toons, these fucking animated weasels, have jurisdiction over a real human. (laughs) They're the judge's deputies. I know, but it just seems so crazy. These cartoons are shooting their way into my office, and I have to listen to them. (laughs) Stop that laughing! (laughs) Eddie manages to get rid of the weasels by concealing Roger in a sink full of dishwater. We are introduced to the concept that if the weasels start laughing, they might not be able to stop. By the way, how hard of a fugitive is Roger to harbor? I know. Zero chill. Desperate to get caught at any moment. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing about Roger. He is the iconic character. He is the title character of the film. He's sort of hard to deal with. Yeah. He does have funny parts in the film, but... I would say that his annoying meter is at least equal to entertaining meter. Yeah. And having to be the one that corrals him during this time where Seems he could like get both of them killed. Frustrating endeavor. So what does he do? What does Eddie do? He takes the wanted rabbit to the terminal station bar and makes his problem. Dolores' problem, too. <laughs> Let me bring you into this. They bring Roger to a secret rot gut room, a holdover from Prohibition, which is a pretty cool detail in the movie. I like the hidden room and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. So when Eddie takes Roger into that back room at the bar to cut apart these handcuffs, the lamp from the ceiling is bumped and swinging. Lots of extra work was needed to make the shadows match between the actual room shots and the animation. So today quote, bump the lamp as an expression is a term used by many Disney employees to refer to going that extra mile on an effect just to make it a little more special, even though most of the audience members will never notice it. That's the kind of shit they were doing in this movie that we were alluding to earlier. They just kept going further and further with it to make it seem more and more real. And yes, a huge part of your audience is going to miss these little shadow details and dust details and all these different things. Uh Uh-huh. But overall, it lends to this vibe that this is all a very real world that Absolutely. they're inhabiting. It's a great bit. The handcuffs, <laughs> Roger can just get out of them. <laughs> and then Eddie explodes. You mean to tell me you could get out of those handcuffs the whole time? 
No, only when it was funny. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's when Roger really comes through with a home run where you're like, yeah, that's actually hilarious. I don't even know what Eddie's thinking when he's like, can we stash Roger here to buy me some time to do something? I'm like, what? You want to leave him there? How do you think that's going to play out? Well, it doesn't play out well. Jessica shows up at Eddie's office next to tell him that Maroon forced her to pose for the photographs by threatening Roger's career so Maroon could blackmail Acme. She says she's just a pawn in this game, and she utters the immortal line, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way, (laughs) which was picked as one of the AFI top 100 movie quotes because it is so good. It's perfect. Right. It sounds like a femme fatale yep. film noir line, but it wouldn't make any sense unless the woman was a cartoon. <laughs> right. And yet it's so it's it's unbelievable I how know. perfect it is. And then she keeps like getting close to Eddie and like her breasts are pushed up against him. He doesn't know what to do. Sure. And then his pants conveniently fall at that moment. And then Dolores <laughs> is standing there dabbling in watercolors, Eddie, <laughs> which is another great line. Yeah. Dolores is mad about Jessica and potentially catching Eddie in a compromising position with her, but in the Rightfully end, so. she's got vital information to the case. Yep. Regardless of how things look, it's not Maroon that wants to get his hands on Toontown. It's Cloverleaf Industries, the same Cloverleaf that recently acquired the popular red car public transit, and there is a deadline of midnight to find Acme's actual will, or Cloverleaf will get Toontown, I've always loved that Jessica is in that car eavesdropping. Yes. I don't really understand why or what's going on. I guess it's to make the audience suspect her further, because there are large parts of this film where you think that Jessica is a villain. Sure. So having her right next to them, essentially, in a car, listening but not saying anything, makes her seem suspicious, I guess. I don't know. Well, this is one of those movies that is obviously going to be aiming to be clicking for kids and adults and i would say it's successful at that but it's i'm just trying to imagine myself as a kid understanding what the hell is going on with cloverleaf oh no you wouldn't i know but i don't really think that's necessarily important because there's so much zany shit in the movie that the kids are gonna like and they just kind of get the general idea because judge doom is evil enough that he's the bad guy roger's the good guy even as an adult, you're kind of struggling to. Well, put that's all the Chinatown, together. right? Exa- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're kind of like, what the fuck is going that on? That is like the film noir thing in general. It's always so a many little details. too complicated. Yeah. <laughs> However, as to be expected, Roger can't keep a low profile in the tavern, especially without Dolores or Eddie there to babysit him. This is what I'm talking about, dude. I left you alone for like 20 minutes, and you're coming out and fraternizing with singing. all the patrons. He's singing and dancing. I mean, playing people records. know that this guy is wanted for murder, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, for the most part. Yeah. He's entertaining all of the patrons at the bar, getting the attention of the weasels, who in turn bring Judge Doom. Eddie hides him in the back room again, but the judge and his weasel oh, minions yeah. arrive. First of all, there's this whole sequence with the patron that's sort of like a psych out, but then the judge realizes that he's there by like smelling that record? No, the record... I can't remember the name of it right now. The Mary Band Broke Down or whatever. That's the Looney Tunes theme song. Okay. So who the fuck is listening to this? Right. No, there's just enough (laughs) evidence there. There's broken shit everywhere. He's here. The weasel said he was there. It seems like he was there. So he does a test. 
Shave and a haircut. Yep. No tune can resist, <laughs> which is also good. It's a good bit. Yeah, yeah. Two bits. <laughs> Just an idiot yeah. crashing through the wall like the fucking Kool-Aid man. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? Say, boss, you always should disassemble the place. No, Sergeant. Disassembling the place won't be necessary. A rabbit is going to come right to me. No two can resist the old shave and a haircut. I don't know what I was telling you. You are doomed. Roger. Roger. Roger, no! Hey, Judge, what should we do with a wallflower? We'll see to him later. Right now, I feel like dispensing some justice. Bring me some dip. <laughs> Condemned to have anything to say before his sentence is carried out? Why, yeah! Dolores, bourbon, I'm making a double. Fine time for a drink, Eddie. Maybe you'd like a bowl of pretzels to go with it. Just pour the drink, Dolores. Hey, Judge! Doesn't a dying rabbit deserve a last request? Yeah, nose plugs would be nice. I think you want a drink. How about it, Judge? Huh? Well, why not? I don't mind prolonging the execution. <gasps> I betrayal. Not like Petty. I'm trying to cut down. Drink the drink. But I don't want the drink. He doesn't want the drink. He does. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You don't. I do. I do. You don't. Listen, when I say I do, that means I do. However, Eddie's got a plan to get him out of Judge Doom's evil clutches because he knows what happens when Roger drinks alcohol. For whatever reason, the judge seems amenable enough to let Roger have a last drink. However, Roger doesn't want to drink it. <laughs> I'm trying to cut down. Yeah. It's so, a giant glass of bourbon, too. He has to do a reverse psychology yeah. where he switches the argument. Drink the drink! And it's Roger's reaction to the alcohol exploding up where every glass, every bottle breaking in the bar... That saves his ass here because everyone yeah. goes flying back. I have had some moments doing shots like this in my life. 
except for with you is like vomit yeah. spraying everywhere. <laughs> Call an ambulance. Vomit and tears. Yeah. yeah. Call an ambulance. As Lindsay just drives away. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie and Roger are able to evade Doom and the Weasels with help from Benny, a tuned taxi cab who's introduced into the movie now as a character. See, there's stuff was, like that that's definitely for kids, where you're just yeah. like, okay, let's just add a character who's a cartoon taxi cab. Which it is funny that he's a car and he's locked up in the back of another car. It's a pretty fun chase. It's extended. It goes through a bunch of different parts. Benny does the thing with the stilt wheels to get around the uh-huh. two cars coming from different sides of a an alley. He ends up on a bridge, and then he says, if you ever need a ride, just stick out your thumb, which Eddie will accidentally do later. They flee to a movie theater showing a goofy cartoon, and Eddie finally shares with Roger the tragic story of his brother Teddy. Again, though, Roger's making a huge scene at the theater. But he had a good point, though. Yeah. You're the only one here not laughing. (laughs) Goofy is, what does he say? An artist. Yeah, a genius. (laughs) A genius. There was a bank robbery in Toontown. Or it led them to Toontown. I don't know why Eddie and Teddy were investigating a bank robbery. I guess maybe at one point they were actual cops or but then they but they already opened two flatfoots and a floozy yeah so i don't really know why they were involved with a bank robbery but well corrupt police force the bank owner wanted to hire some private contractors for it they follow the suspect in the tomb town dropped the piano from 15 stories killed teddy eddie broke his arm the assailant had burning red eyes high-pitched laughed they never found him the theater that they're in reminds me of the theater that Joaquin Phoenix is in in The Master. Oh, yeah. Just one of those giant theaters with a huge balcony. The type of thing that I like. wish we were seeing movies in. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, we go to a theater that holds like 100 people, and there's like four people in it. <laughs> <laughs> Dolores arrives, and as the three of them leave, Eddie sees a newsreel detailing the sale of maroon cartoons to Cloverleaf Industries. This same mysterious corporation seemingly buying everything and whose name has been coming up a little too often. Eddie believes he's found the connection between everything. So, promising Maroon that he has Acme's will on him, Eddie goes to Maroon's office, gets the jump on him, and interrogates him. Roger is positioned outside to stand guard and watch his back, but he is knocked out with a frying pan and kidnapped by Jessica... Maroon tells Eddie that he blackmailed Acme into selling his company so that he could sell the studio, then admits he only did so out of fear for the safety of the tunes. but before he can expand upon that, Maroon is murdered by an unseen assailant sticking a gun through the window. He is effectively silenced before explaining the consequences of the missing will, and then Eddie spots Jessica fleeing the scene and assuming she must be the murderer... He follows her into Toontown, and this is a big moment. Yeah. It's a big moment for Eddie, and it's a big movie for the movie and the audience, too, because we're going to switch perspectives completely into a complete different world. But for Eddie, he's never gone back to Toontown since what happened to his brother, Haunted Past. Yeah. Pretty good-sized revolver used in this murder, by the way. Yeah, really long barrel. Yeah. (laughs) Eddie exchanges his real gun for a cartoon one, a gift from Yosemite Sam, of all people, although he didn't really acknowledge him when he came flying over the wall when his biscuits were burning. Right. Cartoon bullets as well. I guess this is sort of a nod to his past where he was more okay being in touch with the Toon world. Right. He has had this gun, 
and seemingly these bullets can do beyond what a normal bullet could do. Cartoon bullets, yeah. Right. They all have personalities yeah, and yeah. voices. And maybe most importantly, Eddie pours the booze out before heading into That's Toontown. Right. Yeah. He's a gotta new be, man. Got to be sharp for this. Which I kind of get. Yeah. I feel like entering Toontown, even under the influence of nothing, is probably close to LSD or something. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Eddie enters Toontown. He and his car are real. Everything around him now is a tune. It's sunny as opposed to the real world where it was nighttime. Everyone's singing. They made a movie in the early 90s where the main character was real and everything else was a tune. It was called Cool World with Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah. I've never seen it. I've heard it's not great. Yeah. It definitely flopped. I think I saw... I think Kim Basinger was the femme fatale woman, the drawing. Didn't they do like a Blu-ray for it like not that long ago? Yeah, yeah, I think maybe Shout did it or okay. something. It was PG-13. I'm assuming it it stole a lot from this because it seemed like a noirish type story too, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure because I didn't see it, so I can't really speak to it. Eddie crashes his car into a broken down truck, Acme overused gags. There's anvils, pianos, safes, bathtubs, <laughs> all the different things they use a lot. Right. <laughs> In the one building where he tracks Jessica or who he thinks is Jessica – there's an elevator bit with Droopy Dog where the elevator is flying up and down and Eddie has some cartoonish things happen to him. They didn't want to go too overboard with it, which I'll get to in a minute. I think at one point when Roger and he are in Benny, I think that Eddie is very briefly animated a couple of times rather than a real person, I guess just to make it easier to do the scene. Makes sense. But yeah, I think whenever he enters Toontown, they pick and choose right. what they wanted to do. They couldn't do too much because it would detract from the character, I guess. Well, the world is almost underwhelmingly underpopulated by characters at this point. He doesn't have that many run-ins. Yeah, I do think that Toontown is a little disappointing. Yeah. It might be the weakest part of the movie. I'm guessing because it was just really hard That's to do. That's what I think, yeah. With Eddie in there. Right. Anyway, the woman he thinks is Jessica is actually Lena Hyena. <laughs> and frightening. Based on the creation of the same name by artist Basil Wolverton, first conceived in 46 for a contest by Al Cap to depict the world's ugliest woman. Yikes. To be featured in his Lil Abner comic strip. Something that would probably not be cool now, I guess. I'm going to say not. There was a bit here that they wanted to do, and this is what I was referring to earlier, where she puts her tongue all the way through... One ear, it comes out the other side of his head, (laughs) the other ear. And they were like, eh, it's too, too much. There's some graffiti in that unfinished bathroom that he walks into for a good time called Allison, A-L-L-Y-S-O-N, Wonderland. So Allison Wonderland, the best is yet to be. Maybe something you could make an Alan Moore Lost Girls joke here with Allison Wonderland. (laughs) That's a specific (laughs) reference. Well, they're implying that Alice in Wonderland is a whore. Although Alice in Wonderland does sound, kind of sound like a porn name. That is true. If you make it Alice yeah. in, just some adult humor. I'm here well, for it. After some hijinks involving Tweety, Mickey Mouse, and Bugs Bunny, Eddie does eventually track down Jessica. I remember watching this when I was a kid and being confused as to why Tweety is making him fall from being that thing dick. he's hanging from. Yeah. I'm like, why is Tweety like a bad guy? Right. Some things hit kids a little differently sometimes based yeah. on their perceptions of things, and you're kind of confused by it. Right. 
Valiant. I always knew I'd get it in Toontown. Behind you! Drop it, lady! I just saved your life and you still don't trust me? I don't trust anybody or anything. Not even your own eyes? That's the gun that killed Arkane Maroon. And Doom pulled the trigger. Doom? I followed him to the studio, but I was too late to stop him. That's right! You'll never stop me! You're dead! You're both dead! Doom! Which way'd he go? I don't know, but he went that away. Let's go! Dum-dums. Come on. Yeah. Oh, no. Where's Roger? Roger? He chickened out on me back at the studio. No, he didn't. I hit him on the head with a frying pan and put him in the trunk so he wouldn't get hurt. Makes perfect sense. We're obviously not going anywhere in my car. Let's take yours. I got a feeling somebody already did. From the looks of it, I'd say it was Roger. My honey bunny was never very good behind the wheel. A better lover than a driver, huh? You'd better believe it, Buster. Uh-oh. It's the weasels! This way! We'll no take way. Gingerbread Lane! No, no! Gingerbread Lane's this way! So, Valiant, you call a cab or what? Hubba, hubba, hubba! Allow me, mademoiselle! So how long have you known it was Doom? Before poor Marvin Acme was killed, he confided in me that Doom wanted to get his hands on Toontown, and he wouldn't stop at anything. So he gave you the will for safekeeping? That's what he told me, except when I opened the envelope, there was only a blank piece of paper inside. Eh, a joker to the end. So where to already? My meat is running. I have to find my darling husband. I'm so worried about him. Seriously? What do you see in that guy? He makes me laugh. <laughs> Jessica reveals that it was in fact Doom who killed Acme and Maroon, and that the former gave her his will for safekeeping, but she soon discovered it was blank. There's a murder attempt here on Eddie. It is pretty much revealed that it is Doom right away, so you can kind of just buy Jessica's story. He escapes as they fire after him. Yeah, the cartoon gun kind of lets us down here. But when everything starts turning and they're about to be captured by Doom and the Weasels, that's when Eddie inadvertently calls Benny and they make their escape. Mm-hmm. But when they return back into the real world, there's a dip trap from Doom, which doesn't kill Benny, but it fucks up his tires and he goes right off the road. That's when Jessica and... Eddie go flying out of the vehicle, and she flashes her beave, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, except not in the versions we were watching. Yeah, Matt was going frame by frame on <laughs> just this. To, just to confirm. <laughs> well, I think that when I first got this movie on DVD or Blu-ray, I definitely was doing that, because yeah. I didn't know that they had taken it out right. in later versions. I was, I was like, I can't imagine they're okay with this on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were hashtag restore the original cut, restore the beaver cut. <laughs> How fucking sad is it that people were running out to buy this Laserdisc? I know. It's I well, say that as I know out. that if I would have been buying Laserdisc <laughs> and at the right age, that I would have been running out to buy it too. You would have been taking like your girlfriend to do it. That was like a Tuesday night. <laughs> we're driving around to all the different Camelot musics <laughs> to find this Laserdisc. That's the only store I can remember selling Laserdiscs. Yeah. I, I never owned a Laserdisc in my life. Neither did I. I wasn't the right age. Yeah, yeah. I would have if I was older, because it was considered way better than VHS. Right. So 
I probably would have if I was the right age at the yeah. time when they were big. I only ever knew one family that had a laser display. Yeah, I don't think that many people really had them, to be honest. It was really just a much larger precursor to DVDs, right. and you weren't able to put as much bonus features on there. Although I do think that they did some deleted scenes sometimes, and then audio commentaries. That's where that first started, I think. Oh, yeah. We're just going off on a laser disc discussion because right. of the f- edited frames <laughs> from some creep in animation. And I know that- This is legendary stuff. Well, everyone knows some of the Aladdin ones. Yeah. It says Lion sex King. in the sky. There's some boner stuff. Or yeah, yeah. Lion, Lion King, King or whatever. I don't yeah. know. Who knows? Lion King is the one that says sex in the sky. I think Aladdin is where- You can hear them say something. There, and there's like maybe a tiger that has a boner or something. I don't know. No, the Weird boner shit. is um, Little Mermaid. The priest is getting a boner. Oh, yeah. Like and that one cover, that. Yeah. the one shell case cover yeah. is like all dicks. There's like huge dicks drawn into it right. if, you, if you look yeah. in the right way. And there's a frame of Little Mermaid because it is weird that she's like this young girl who ends up nude several times because of her trans or bottomless, I guess, mm. because of her transformations. Yeah. And I think one time when she's turned into a human and swimming out of the ocean, there's like a frame where you see her butt for one shot, but it's like not very detailed. It's you know, oh, whatever. Sure. Yeah. But like, in other words, after who framed Roger Rabbit, I guess it just became a thing that some of these animators would sneak these things in there and it would just be one frame. Which and so you kind of weird really tell. Yeah. Well, I think they did it to amuse themselves. Right. I guess it always sort of reminded me of the bit from fight club, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously it's not as the bad subliminal, as that. Or the subliminal messaging, <laughs> the subliminal porn. Yeah. <laughs> like the one frame of a penis right. in a movie. It's not quite that, but, it is weird, I agree, because these movies are for children. And yeah. They're, but they're, I guess they're just doing it to be dicks or amuse themselves or mm-hmm. whatever. I also heard that the thing with the Little Mermaid dick cover for the VHS or whatever, that was somebody who was pissed or disgruntled or something and had a bone to pick with Disney. Oh, okay. So sometimes it's yeah motivated by whatever. Other things. As a result of this dip trap that gets it, Benny, Jessica, and Eddie are then captured by Doom and the Weasels. I guess they don't remember that they also had captured Benny earlier because they just right. seem to just let him go. Yeah, yeah. They're like, who cares about this guy? There's a pretty risque moment when one of the weasels reaches down Jessica's I, dress. Uh, yeah, it had been a while since I watched this. Like I said, I remembered it being a little risque. But on rewatch, I'm like, okay, it's mostly tame, though. But this part, I was like, wow, holy shit. Yeah, I can't believe they put that in this movie. I Eddie, mean, nice booby trap. Yeah, it's all really just to set up that joke, but it is kind of nuts that he just reaches down there. This movie is desperately trying to get the audience to want to fuck a cartoon woman. I mean, it's going above and beyond. You yeah, the boobs bouncing. She's wearing a dress with a really high slit where you see so much of her legs. The animators are slipping in different things. I'd say there's some cleavage. <laughs> yeah, just a tiny <laughs> bit of cleavage. <laughs> She's shaped like no woman has ever been shaped. It's a lot going on. And then they're having characters reach down her dress. I and know. she's playing patty cake. And I mean, it's just <laughs> endless. Cake. Where you're just like, okay, we want to fuck this cartoon woman. We get it. You, you, you win. You've ruined a generation. Now. Yeah, really. At the Acme factory, Doom reveals himself as the sole shareholder of Cloverleaf Industries and explains his plot to destroy yeah. Toontown with a machine fueled with dip. Not really any mystery at this point. To build a freeway full of attractions in its place, 
so much talk about this freeway. And force people to drive it once he has the transit system decommissioned to control all the profits. It turns into this big joke about Los Angeles and how it's like, oh, if we have this freeway it's in, and, you know, we're going to have all these fast food restaurants and billboards, it'll be so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and this is a variation of what did happen. So it it is real, kind of. And it's also a big joke where Eddie doesn't even know what a freeway is. Him and Jessica are sort of baffled by the whole thing. Roger finds Benny, and together they head to the factory. Benny heads off to get the authorities while Roger sneaks in to try to make the save. But, of course, that all blows up when he kind of screws it up. It's not entirely his fault. The one weasel drops that. For some reason, there's a big, I don't know, rope Oh yeah, thing filled with bricks that just drops. <laughs> I don't know why that's hanging from the ceiling. I guess because it's Acme. When Roger's unsuccessful in his attempt to save Jessica, both he and her are tied onto a hook in front of the dip machine's water cannon. She says to Roger, I've loved you more than any woman's loved a rabbit. In desperation, Eddie performs a comedic vaudeville act full of pratfalls, causing the weasels to start dying of laughter (laughs) before he kicks their weasel leader into the machine's dip vat, killing him too. Yeah, he's doing like back handsprings and shit. Shall I repose with him right now, boss? I'll watch his two friends get dipped and shoot him. With pleasure. That's funny to you, ain't it, Needle Nose? You've got a problem with that value? No. I just uh, want you to know something about the guy you're gonna get. Now, Roger is his name. Laughter is his name. Come on, you dope, and tie his rope and watch him go insane. <laughs> He's lost his mind. I don't think so. <laughs> this singing ain't my line. It's tough to make a rhyme. If I get stuck, I'm, I'm out of luck. I'm, uh, I'm running out of time. Thanks. off the walls. Without that gun and had some fun, I'd kick you in the... Nose! Nose? That don't rhyme with walls. No, but this does. (laughs) (laughs) The spray is turned on, knocked back and forth a bunch of times, nearly hitting Roger and Jessica, still tied and hanging. Kind of weird that the weasels are straight up dying and you see their like souls with halos over their heads. As I wonder away. if they drew the 
souls going up to heaven is a way to lessen it or just to confirm that they're dead. Yeah, I don't know. Lessen the blow to the little children. I don't know. Eddie fights Doom. Lots of tune and Acme gags going on here, including an archived Sinatra voice being used for the singing sword. Doom is eventually flattened by a steamroller, but actually survives, revealing that he was a disguised tune all along. But not only that, he was the tune that killed Eddie's brother, Teddy. What a rise it was for this criminal tune. Christopher Lloyd figured that Doom was a tune all along because part of the script instructions said that Doom never blinks, which he doesn't. There's a lot of other clues you can pick up on as well to the fact that Judge Doom is a tune. Despite Dip being harmless to live-action humans, Doom always wears gloves when demonstrating it. He's got waxy skin and a fake Adam's apple and oversized teeth. His teeth are absurd. His teeth look really white, too. His cloak is always blowing with a slight breeze, even indoors, a common cartoon villain staple. His stiff, exaggerated movements resemble that of a toon. Getting around quickly in a toony sort of way, wearing his clothes well, with no exposed skin showing around his body. The fact that he jumped out of the way when the dip was tipped over when Roger had a drink and went ballistic. And he was also not in any pain after being shot by the gun Jessica had in Toontown, being able to get away easily unharmed. But he was afraid of the cartoon gun. That is true. Some clues, then, you're saying. There's some clues. Yeah. During the ensuing battle, a fortuitous bounce opens the machine supply of dip all over the factory floor, spraying all over Doom as well, who melts like the Wicked Witch of the West. Announcing he's melting, even. The emptied machine then crashes through the wall into Toontown where it's destroyed by a train. As the police and prominent Toons gather at the scene, Eddie reveals the truth about Doom to everyone clearing Roger's name. Eddie also discovers Acme's will, on which Roger had written a love letter to Jessica. As the will was written in Disappearing, Reappearing Ink, and Toontown is handed over to the Toons... How about that for a significant plot point? We sing, smile, darn ye, smile, and we're (laughs) out. Meanwhile, Eddie just fuming. That son of a bitch ruined my shirt. (laughs) I only have two shirts. I sleep in my office. What the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) Jessica's going to bake Roger a carrot cake, which sounds like 
code similar to that of patty, patty cake. cake. And that'll do it for your picture. Now let's get into some of the unused ideas. Because this whole process, as we alluded to and we talked about and we described a little bit, was completely exhaustive. It was a huge undertaking that involved a lot of shit, a lot of moving pieces, a lot of companies giving their approval to these characters. How do we do this, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, the story itself would evolve and change over time. During the writing process, Price and Seaman were unsure of whom to include as the villain of the plot. They wrote scripts that had either Jessica Rabbit or Baby Herman as the villain, but they made their final decision with the newly created character Judge Doom. Doom was supposed to have an animated vulture sit on his shoulder, but this was deleted due to the technical challenges this posted. Oh yeah, that seems it would be tough. Doom would also have a suitcase of 12 small animated kangaroos that act as a jury by having their joeys pop out of their pouches, each with letters when put together would spell, you are guilty. (laughs) This was also cut for budget and technical reasons. A kangaroo court, that's kind of funny, I guess. Yeah. The Toon Patrol did have names, but they're not mentioned. Stupid, smartass, greasy, wheezy, and psycho. These were originally supposed to satirize the seven dwarfs who appeared in Snow White. Originally, there were going to be seven weasels to mimic the dwarfs' compliment, but eventually two of them, Slimy and Sleazy, were written out of the script, probably just to make it easier. They were like, holy shit, this is too much. I like that there were specific ones written out, even though we don't actually get their names. They were probably just in the script. Yeah. Further references included the... Ink and Paint Club resembling the Harlan Cotton Club, which, while Zemeckis compared Judge Doom's invention of the dip to eliminate all tunes as Hitler's final solution, as I mentioned earlier, they weren't really shy when bringing this into a more serious world. Uh, I'd say so. My favorite of the unused ideas, Doom was originally the hunter who killed Bambi's mother. Wow. They probably took that out because they didn't want riots. Yeah. I mean, people would be standing up attacking the screen at that point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You Christopher Lloyd would probably be getting like death threats. <laughs> I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> There's no bigger heel yeah. in the history of cartoons. Absolutely. Than the hunter who killed Bambi's Nothing mother. Nothing more upsetting has ever happened. Benny the Cab was first conceived to be a Volkswagen Beetle before being changed to a taxi cab. Originally, there was an idea to have a sequence set at Marvin Acme's funeral, which would have had another chance to bring all these characters into play. Foghorn, Leghorn, Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Tom and Jerry, Heckle and Jekyll, Chip and Dale, Felix the Cat, a lot of these other people, Mighty Mouse, Superman, Popeye, Mm. Olive Oil. That would have been fun. But they didn't get the rights to all these characters anyway, and it never really made it past the storyboard stage. And then finally... Uh, This is a miracle that they ended up on this title because some of the other working titles included Murder in Toontown, Toons, Dead Toons Don't Pay Bills, which I don't even get, The Toontown Trial, Trouble in Toontown, and Eddie Goes to Toontown. They were really fixated on Toontown for some reason, which I think would be terrible. Yeah, I know. Wow, I'm really glad they landed where they did. Who censored Roger Rabbit is a terrible title as well, but who framed Roger Rabbit I think is great. It works. But as I said, the story of who censored Roger Rabbit is completely different, and that's why that's the title uh, of that yep. book. 
So a sequel has never happened, which we've talked about, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been tried and they haven't thought about it and worked on it. It started way back in 89 when Spielberg had a young J.J. Abrams start working on a script with Zemeckis going to be the producer, not sure who was going to direct it. It's kind of hard to believe, but yes, J.J. Abrams was on the scene by that point, but really hadn't had any breakouts yet. He was more of a writer working on different stuff Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Originally, there was going to be a prequel at one point, 41 to 43, Jessica captured by Nazis, and Roger and a human companion would save her behind enemy lines. This would be when Roger and Jessica first met and led to their marriage and everything. It would also include a search for Roger's biological mother. Bugs Bunny was going to be his father. Spielberg decided he couldn't satirize Nazis after making Schindler's List, so this prequel stuff was amended to get rid of the Nazi stuff. They did a 97 rewrite with the search for Roger's mother still present, but the World War II stuff was replaced by Roger's rise to stardom instead. Disney was impressed enough to hire a songwriter to write five songs. Oh, wow. It was going to be called Who Discovered Roger Rabbit. They shot test footage in 1998, which was a mix of CGI, traditional animation, and live action. The results evidently were not good. I bet. So then they switched to all CGI, but then dropped it because the budget started ballooning well over $100 million Oh, shit. Because CGI is yeah, yeah. and was very expensive. By the time we get to the 2000s, it's back to a sequel idea instead of a prequel. Unfortunately, Bob Hoskins passes away in 2014, but that didn't really stop any of this talk from going on, especially anytime Zemeckis was out promoting one of his terrible new movies. <laughs> there were various different ideas. At one point, they were going to do like a 50s noir sequel that was talked about in 2016. In 2013, they actually brought on the original novelist, Gary K. Wolf, to work on a buddy comedy between Roger and Mickey Mouse, which would have been a remake of the film The Stooge. That never really went anywhere. Huh. Most recently, when asked about it, Zemeckis has said that he thinks it's unlikely. I think that's fair. Times have changed significantly. Disney would not be a fan of Jessica Rabbit anymore, not to mention a lot of the other stuff that goes into it. Were they ever? I think that it's still likely there will be something at some point. It will probably be straight to Disney+, and it will suck, and Uh it won't be the same kind of cool vibe. Yeah. Any sort of revival is always on the table in the climate that we're in. Like I said, they they will make Jessica wear more clothes, yeah. and she won't be exactly the same. And it's just hard to imagine the look will be anything. I mean, even though our capabilities are so much further than they were back then, creativity is down. Yeah, and it will probably be CGI, yeah, I yeah. imagine. So that'll do it. It's a fun movie to revisit. It's one of those ones where... You kind of forget how cool it is. Absolutely, I know. But it's super fun, especially as you get more into noir films in your life and you're maybe exploring the films of the 40s. Oh, yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is kind of a cool homage to it done in a a way that is so unique. It gives you another level of appreciation. Combining cartoons and people. The story works. The innovation is awesome. There's legitimate laughs. Yeah, it is funny. Great performances from Hoskins and Joanna Cassidy in a smaller part and Christopher Lloyd. 
I do like that Eddie and Dolores never actually get to kiss. It's constantly interrupted. Right. But yeah, it sucks that Hoskins died. So for me, it really wouldn't be the same for a sequel. I know there was talk yeah. of maybe doing a... Like a hologram? Yeah, like a hologram, Bob Hoskins. I know they fucked around with that in the new Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. I, you know, don't do right. shit. Like, come on. Yeah, I'm with you. It's fine for this movie to exist as a standalone. Like you said, things are always being brought back, so it seems like it'll happen at some point. But I don't know. It's hard to imagine them really being able to do anything that would recapture this magic. The only way that I would be down for it is if like some legitimately great people were involved in making it. Sort of whoever the modern day equivalents of those people were, which there aren't any, but you know what I mean. Like interesting, cool people that had an interesting idea. And Disney was actually going to be fearless and let this be a PG-13 project with a little bit more of an adult vibe. And you got Charles Fleischer and Kathleen Turner to do the voices. Sure. I could see a path to making something serviceable, decent, okay, at the very least. Anything short of that would just be... Hot garbage. Yeah, yeah, come on. Yeah. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. I think for recommendations, we'll talk about two movies that are out now. One that I saw by myself, and then one that we saw together. I'll talk very briefly about the one that you didn't see, which is Tar. Mm Mm-hmm. Directed by Todd Field, Nick Nightingale. Oh, for yeah. For those of you who don't know. <laughs> don't even shut. get me started on Eyes Wide yeah, Shut yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Yeah, I know. God knows I want to talk about Eyes Wide Shut more than anything the else. The whole pre-show was about Eyes Wide Shut. Starring Kate Blanchett, it's about a woman, a composer, a fictional character, but she's like in the classical music world. She's a big deal. She's a big composer and then she is confronted with her own me too type scandal where she promoted people underneath her based on sexual favors and then blacklisted or got rid of people that didn't give in other women she's Mm -hmm. a lesbian and they don't really get super into the details of what she did exactly but you get a sense and then there's a scene early on in the movie though that makes me love her because she's a teacher too and she's teaching this class and this one super woke student is afraid like doesn't like Bach because of Bach's personal life you know okay. hundreds of years ago yeah. <laughs> because of whatever he did and she just cannot wrap her mind around this and it gets like really confrontational and weird and then she upsets this guy and he's like you're a fucking bitch and he like walks out of the class and stuff and then this gets used against her later although it's an edited video of stuff that happened it makes her look way worse but that's not really her Me Too moment. That's oh, yeah. that other shit. Right. But yeah, I mean, that scene, I was like, man, what are they convincing me to love this character? She's like, <laughs> fuck this bullshit. Like, she's like, you live online or you live on Twitter or something. Yeah, like, yeah. Get out of that shit. It's a pretty cool movie. It's very long. Yeah, I know. When you gave me the choice of which movie to see, the runtime heavily made me in favor of the other choice. <laughs> yeah. I definitely enjoyed it. It's very unique. It makes you think about things and it puts you into the headspace of someone going through this, even though that's not necessarily a place where a lot of people want to be. 
at first you think like, oh, it's a bullshit cop out. Like, why make her a woman when most of these Me Too scandals have been about men? Like, mm-hmm. why do that? And I think it's because it makes it more palatable to the audience to be in her perspective. True. If you make yeah. this story about a man and then make it in his perspective, straight villain. Yeah, people are going to be like, this is fucked up or whatever. But like, it allows you just that little crack in the door right. to go in and be like, okay, let me experience this. Because they do play up the paranoia and the sort of the sense of never knowing exactly what's going to happen. And like, I was trying to explain it to you where there are times in the movie where they almost make it feel like a horror movie is about to start happening. Yeah. Because there's some weird just shit tension. in it where you're like, what's going on right now? we're entering a dark room, but it seems scary or something. Like, right. I don't know. They definitely play with that a lot. And I think it's just to get you into that uneasy headspace, like what's going on. And then of course, like her world eventually crashes down. And I, I don't know that I love it as much as some people, but I did enjoy it a lot. It's the type of movie. I'm not a hundred percent sure that I would ever watch again. I definitely want to watch it, but yeah, I think you would like it. Yeah. And then the other movie we saw was The Banshees of Inishirin, the new movie from Martin McDonough. Yeah, reuniting the leads from In Bruges, which is a movie that I enjoyed very much. It's interesting how divisive and how much vitriol there still is about Three Billboards, a movie that I still don't really grasp why people hated it so much. Uh-huh. It just became one of those memes where in the build-up to Oscar races when somebody thinks a movie is a contender they do like a takedown of it and then it becomes like a thing and then that has really hung on i do think that some of the racial stuff is a little clumsy but that's sort of how the real world is i know that people who live on twitter and who are terminally online don't really fully grasp how the real world works but and i would say specifically the world that is cultivated in that movie is a clumsy world with clumsy characters yeah it's very over the top there's a movie where she kicks a boy in the dick and a girl in the pussy an adult woman uh-huh. and there's no repercussions right, it's right. never mentioned yeah. and yet people can't seem to grasp that it's like a a heightened cartoon world right and i i do think that real people in real life are shades of gray and so the sam rockwell character even though that was a problem for people i think that because somebody is shitty in one sense that doesn't mean that they can't be heroic in another sense i know that that leads you start you start going down the the path of movies like crash and stuff like that but I don't think it was anywhere near as ridiculous as Crash or, or as terrible as that movie. So, look, did I think it deserved to be like best picture winner? I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. Who cares? Yeah. But the fact that people like still hate it so much, I find amusing. But anyway, this is his new film. Yeah. Finally, a follow up. He it's much more simplistic. He takes right. it back to Ireland. Forget the United States now. And it's a little bit goofier, although it still has that level of darkness and absurdity that I would say Three Billboards had. That sets apart a little bit because his older stuff while darkly comedic i don't know there was something a little bit goofier to the yeah this is much more grounded in a, in a sadness and yeah, a despair yeah. which i think that the movie is kind of about and the lengths that we will go to to have things our way and yeah the weird balance between artistic pursuit and selfish pursuit but also being a decent person right well and i think the juxtaposition of civil war going on simultaneously to this I think right that, you know it is a period piece it takes place i think in the 20s i believe and it is very funny definitely it's a dark comedy it's a sad comedy a tragic comedy it gets less funny as it goes i think intentionally because it starts to take on a different tone yeah, altogether it's kind of 
more poignant by the end. There is certainly a grimness to a lot of it. A lot of the characters are very grim and sad and weird. But yeah, it's Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson reunited. Farrell gives a great performance. I think that he will finally get that Best Actor nomination forefront. I I'm, I don't know yeah, if he's yeah. been nominated before, but he certainly hasn't gotten much Oscar love, and I think this will be a year where it's probably going to happen for this movie, I would imagine. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I enjoyed it. It took me a while to process it. I'm not even 100% sure I fully grasp it. Yeah, I did enjoy it, but yeah, I think it probably is supplemented by reading up on it a little bit or an additional viewing. Yeah, it took me a while watching it just to get acclimated to the world that the movie takes place in because it's not really what you're thinking or expecting, probably. Well, I had never seen a trailer even, so... I didn't see a trailer either, but I had heard someone talk about it, so I kind of knew a little bit about it. I had, like, zero idea, so it took a little while. You get it pretty early on that these two dudes were friends and... They no longer are, and that's basically your kicking off point for the movie, but it's just bizarre tonally. Yeah, there's a part of you, you that keeps thinking that the movie hasn't started yet, and then right. you realize you're an hour and 40 minutes yeah, in. right. Because it just still, it seems so small and quaint, and you're yeah. kind of like, oh, this this is the story. Yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed both of those films. You can check them out in theaters. I think they will both be involved in the awards conversations coming up. I'm sure Kate Blanchett will be nominated as well i also wanted to talk a little bit about a new book called cinema speculation by quentin tarantino i know quentin tarantino is divisive i think even amongst our listeners not everybody is a big fan but he wrote his first book which was a novelization of his own film once upon a time in hollywood which is a book that i bought and started reading and didn't get very far for whatever reason (laughs) i just never really vibed with it it's sitting on my shelf This is his second book, and this is a collection of critical essays about cinema from mostly the 70s, late 60s into the 70s. Most of the chapters are the name of a film that he focuses on, but it covers a wide variety of things going on in the films and the actors and directors and writers and the stories that he knows and quotes from people he's talked to and asked about the films and all of that different good stuff. Now, a lot of the cinema Twitter, film Twitter dorks and losers, <laughs> some of those people who ha- always kind of have a, a little bit of a hate boner for Tarantino, even if they like his movies, but him the person, they sort of... I, I definitely right. saw some people complaining or goofing on different things, but it, it always seemed like it was boiling down to just disagreeing with Tarantino's opinion, and it made me think about it Do I think that this is like the most excellent writing on film I've ever seen? No, he's not really as interesting as some of the other books I have. But he's got a lot of cool information. And since you know he makes his own films, there's always this connection and what this all means to him and his career and stuff like that. But it's still fairly entertaining. I I like a lot of the little tidbits and little stuff. And I think the thing that people have a hard time with is that he's so willing to give his opinions even when they're negative about something, which is a world that we don't live in anymore. And the reason is because there's so few things that control what gets made and so few things and everything is so incestuous and connected that 
I think a lot of people even in Hollywood don't want to give their opinions on things because they don't want to piss off Netflix or they don't want to piss off this person or this person did this and so this is connected or how could I say anything about Marvel because every fucking person in the world is involved with Marvel now so I don't want to I know. you know what I mean like everything's so connected and there's not that many things getting made and Tarantino who is in the industry has no fear of this and just gives these opinions now most of his opinions he's giving are about things that are 40 plus years old 40 to 50 years old so who really cares but I think it's so foreign to some of these people that like when he dismisses or shits on something and they don't agree with it they get mad whereas I just kind of roll my eyes I definitely don't agree with everything Tarantino says in these books or or opinions he's given over his career about stuff but it's fascinating and it's interesting and it's a point of view and I wish more people would give it without fear of retribution because Uh I think that if we got more people's opinions from inside the industry, it would, it would shed more light on how different artists perceive things or whatever. And like I've talked about before, I think there's always this bitterness against Tarantino because he's sort of taught a whole generation oh, yeah. how to be the way they are. And so like a lot of these film Twitter people are kind of their own versions of how Tarantino was when he worked in the video store or whatever. And they just can't come to grips with that. But anyway... I think the book is kind of cool if you're interested in movies and interested in the 70s. It's a fun book. It's added some movies to my watch list that I haven't seen. Some of them I have. And so. Do you actually physically add movies to your watch list in Letterboxd? No. Okay. I just meant mentally. Mm, okay. Which, okay, one of his chapters is on Dirty Harry, a movie I'd never seen. Uh huh. I was never really a big Clint Eastwood guy, a lot of that stuff. I'd never seen any of the Dirty Harry movies. He hates all of the sequels, by the way. Oh, really? But he loves Dirty Harry. Yeah. So he there's a whole chapter about Dirty Harry and what's great about it, what's weird about it. The villain in that movie is the dad in Hellraiser, which I didn't even know. But anyway, so well, I got, immediately watched Dirty Harry as a result. I was like, okay, I'll yeah. watch this. You've definitely got me interested in the book. Well, you know, he was speculating on this with whatever, De Niro, De Palmo, and he just asks them. <laughs> that is cool. Even though he's a filmmaker in his own right, I think that he sometimes would fanboy over these different things, and he would ask probably weird questions. That, yeah. You know, De Niro probably hasn't been asked about those first early movies he was in with that De Palma made that often. Right. All right. And the last thing I wanted to shout out a listener to the show, who maybe the other listeners would remember as the woman who requested whatever happened to baby Jane, Karen, she posted on her Twitter that she had this essay in this box set of films that was upcoming from Indicator, which is a UK company, called Universal Noir Number 1. It's their first Universal Noir box set. They have a lot of Columbia ones, which I have a couple of, I think. But anyway, that she was going to have an essay in this, so I immediately pre-ordered it from Indicator's site, and it arrived this past week finally after months because i think it was well in advance i will say that before we go any further i do have a region free blu-ray player so this is all great for me but if you don't have a region free player these are region b blu-rays but it's a it's a set that has six movies in it none of which i've seen i am admittedly pretty much an amateur in this department so i'm still new to a lot of this material but i did read karen's essay Karen Burroughs Hansbury, I hope I'm saying her name right, which is called Unconventional Noir Tropes, Last Minute Title Changes, and Kiss the Blood Off My Hands, 
which is the name of the movie that she's writing about. And I very much enjoyed her essay. It made me excited to watch this movie and to dive into the rest of the set as well. But All right. it's, it's pretty cool that we had someone listening to our podcast who's really out there. She's really... Uh, Definitely. She's had a couple of books published and is the editor-in-chief of the bi-monthly film noir newsletter, The Dark Pages, which was established in 2004, amongst other credits. So it's pretty cool that... Okay, Karen. She found our podcast yeah. and requested an episode before. But yeah, I just wanted to say how cool it was to have this set, which there's a pretty good chance I would have bought it anyway because the blu-ray site that i always buy stuff from actually did get them in at one yeah, point yeah yeah indicator is so, definitely one that pops up in our collections yeah they used to do region free uh-huh. they don't really do it anymore but then they but they have like an american wing now that does region a but it, it isn't quite as good as the stuff they had previously been doing yet but yeah this is a region b set but i'm excited to check these out so i just wanted to shout that out real quick it kind of fits the vibe of a 40s noir, you know, who frames Roger yeah. Rabbit is taking place in the 40s. Very cool. All right, so I guess that'll do it. This is a super long episode. Thanks for hanging in there with us. We will be back with a regular episode on Thanksgiving, but there will be a give us a second in the meantime. Ooh. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. Find us on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Maybe Matt will convince me to pay the $8 to get verified. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know on Twitter and find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. You got anything else? I think we uh, covered a lot of ground here. All right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. I ain't that cool, a little fuck in the head. They'll be hanging me quick when I'm back from the dead.
you almost were cast in the role of Al Capone in the Untouchables movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, uh, which would have been a great... I mean, De Niro played the part, but you'd have been great doing that. No, I, I, I got a phone call from... Um, I got sent the script of the Untouchables, and De Palma said, take a look at the, you know, Al Capone and meet me in the bar. So I went to the, um, whatever, you know, it's this bar, and uh, he said, no, the first thing he said was, well, really, I want De Niro to play this part. I said, oh, great, I'm glad I'll come. <laughs> you know? And uh, he said, but, like, he's a bit difficult to get an answer out of. Now, if he won't do it, would you do it? I said, yeah, if I'm free, yeah. I'm, I ain't holding myself open, like, you know. Yeah. So he said, OK, and... Um, Next thing I know, De Niro's playing the part. I read it in a paper. Well, well, you know, he got him. Um, Linda and me are sitting there having breakfast one morning. Linda's opening a post. She said, what's this? And it was a cheque for $200,000. $200, to you? To me. They sent yeah. you a letter with 200000 Who sent it? It, was, it said, thanks for your time, love, Brian. I phoned him up and said, Brian, listen, you got any films you don't want me to be in, babe? I'm not for you. <laughs> Any day. Good work when you can get it. Yeah.